Well, my name is uh, Andy Wozniki. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at King's Chapel. It's great to be with you this morning. I'm filling in for uh, Andrew, our lead guy. I know we have some visitors that are new here today. And so what I always say in a situation like this is, uh, we want you to come back. We want you to come back and hear, and hear Andrew preach because it's really high bar and it's really, really good. Uh, so if you actually like what you hear this morning, like think about how good it will be when he comes back up in two weeks. It's gonna be great. Uh, and if this morning's a total dud, then what, you know, I'm just filling in. So what'd you expect? Either way, we want you to come back uh, and finish out this series with us on the Ten Commandments. So we're, uh, we're diving in this morning to commandment number three. And here's what I'd like for us to do. Let's all stand, and we're going to read God's Word. I'm going to read it out loud, but this will be a way for us to give deference and reverence to God and His Word. And so we're going to read Exodus 20, 1 through 7. And uh, this morning our focus is going to be on... Verse 7, Exodus 21 through 7, this is God's word. And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And from the New Testament, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, listen to what he said, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You may be seated. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Hey, so so Jesus tells us here that if our prayers are to be taken up with what matters most to him, then at the top of that list is going to be his name. Now, that's kind of a weird thing for us to think about, his name, because usually when we talk about a name, it's... It's mostly just a personal designation. People call me Waz, right? That's short for Wozniki. It doesn't mean anything or say anything about me except that I have a weird last name. And so it's a lot easier just to say Waz. But that's not so in antiquity. Back then in the Hebrew and in Bible times, the name was bound up with the character of someone. And so what we're going to see this morning when we look at the third commandment is that one of the things that God gives us in his 10 words to us is don't mess with my name. Don't mess with my name. And so we know that this is the Father's world. Psalm 24 and 1 Corinthians 10 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so in some ways, he has put his name onto creation And so when we look around because of sin, what we see in our world is a world that's broken and messed up, it's fouled up, and what the third commandment teaches us is that our creator king is serious about his redemption project. He is serious about re-entering this world, 
reclaiming it for himself, reasserting his authority, making all things new, because what matters most to God is his name, the mending of the world. Think about it. When an artist paints a picture, what do they do? They put their name on it. And if somebody paints ugly stuff and then they put your name on it, you say, no, that's not mine. I didn't paint that. Listen, when God looks at the world and he sees uh, children being abused and orphaned, when he sees people being mistreated, when he sees marriages splintering and fracturing, when he sees this opioid crisis in our world, when he sees sex trafficking, a world where disease is sweeping through entire continents, the oppression of minorities, homelessness, poverty. When he looks at the world and he sees 11 more people shot in Pittsburgh last night, what are we to pray? We're to say, this is my father's world and it's broken and it's messed up and I want his name to be hallowed again. One of the guys uh, that we've had the honor of meeting so far, and you have too, is Jeff Clark. We've been here for three months, and uh, I don't know anybody that doesn't like Jeff Clark. Jeff Clark is one of our elders here, and uh, this guy, he's just the best guy. Imagine that Jeff Clark opened a bookstore. What kind of bookstore would that be? Right in smack uh, downtown Carrollton on the square. Well, I would say that if Jeff Clark had a bookstore, they'd probably call it Jeff Clark's Family Bookstore, and it would be the best bookstore. They would have the best atmosphere. They'd have all the best books. People would go in there on Friday night, and they'd have the best places to sit and hang out, and they'd have warm chocolate chip cookies for the kids, you know, and and they'd have hot chocolate, and characters from the books would come to Jeff Clark's Family Bookstore. And the authors of these books would come and they'd do signings and things like that. All the kids would have their birthday parties at Jeff Clark's family bookstore. You'd go there on Friday. You'd hang out. It was the most uh, beautiful thing the community had. All of his family worked there. And when people showed up, you, you got this warm greeting and this, this huge Jeff Clark handshake. They gave money to little league teams. They helped the needy. They donated money to charity. They were a huge blessing to the community. Everywhere you went, you heard about Jeff Clark and his family bookstore. You'd say, oh my goodness, what a guy, Jeff Clark. He's the salt of the earth. He's a pillar of the community. Where in the world would we be without Jeff Clark and his bookstore? Jeff Clark, you see, his name would be attached to what he made to that which he poured his heart into. And you couldn't separate Jeff Clark from what he he worked on so hard to create. Well, the sad thing is Jeff got old. And uh, he ended up selling off his bookstore uh, to another guy in town. And uh, the new owner said, you know, well, we're doing pretty good with Jeff Clark's bookstore. It's kind of a nice name. I like the ring to it. So we're going to keep the name. But we might be able to do a little bit better if it was an adult bookstore. And so they began to swap out all the books for adult material. And suddenly, this new owner, in a matter of time, made Jeff Clark's bookstore a massive purveyor of sexually illicit material and videos and books and things like that. And guess what would pop up every time you Google search Jeff Clark's bookstore? There'd be racy pictures on the billboards coming down 61 into Carrollton. And you'd say, it'd say, Jeff Clark's adult bookstore. There'd be drug paraphernalia in there. It'd become one of the seediest 
raunchiest places in Carrollton. There'd be a gambling outfit. And suddenly, you would say, oh my goodness, this place has become the demise of so many in our community. You hear the name Jeff Clark and people just shake their heads. And they say, gosh, I wish my family, I wish my dad, I wish so-and-so had never stepped foot in Jeff Clark's adult bookstore. Now listen, if you're one of Jeff Clark's kids and that happens, what becomes the cry of your heart? The cry of your heart, I want my dad's name back. I want his name to be revered and esteemed in the community again. I want my dad's name to be hallowed again. This is what Jesus says. He says, when you pray, hallowed be your name. When we pray, your kingdom come. When we pray, your will be done. What we're asking is that God, what matters most to you, well, it really hasn't mattered most to me, but I wanted to. And I want my heart to be aligned with your purposes. I am not satisfied with the brokenness in this world. The reason that we would raise money for an annual budget here at this church is because we would want to pour out our lives. We would want to pour out our resources. We would want to pour out our time and our talents and our gifts to mending this great world of our Father and bringing back the glory of his name. You see, the third commandment is more than just words. But if that's going to happen in our world today, if that's going to happen in Carrollton, Georgia, then we need the Spirit to move. And so I want us to just take a minute and to pray. And I don't want us to just pray because that's what you do to start a sermon. I want us to engage the heart of God right now. And I want us to say, God, whatever you need to do in my life and in my heart and in my mind so that your name would be hallowed again, do that right now. Let's pray together. Well, Father, your name is great. And I pray that this morning we would see its greatness again and how you intend for your name and your character to be a fountain of life for your people, a place where we find joy, delight, and satisfaction, a place where our lives are made new again, and that out of us there would flow streams of living water, and that we would become the missional people of God again, taking forth into this world your name, rightly honored and rightly revered. So we need you, Lord. By the power of your Holy Spirit, show up in this place this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So our goal for this series is uh, really quite simple. It's to change your mind. When you think about the Ten Commandments, oftentimes there's things that come to mind And what we want to say is that these rules are not rules meant for you to try to prescribe God's favor for yourself or to gain it, that these commandments are not really limiting you in any way. But listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119.32 and verse 45. He says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You hear that? That's the goal, to enlarge our hearts, not to narrow it. His law isn't narrowing us. 
I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. To change what comes to mind when we think about the commandments. What comes to mind when you think about the third commandment? Sometimes when we think about the third commandment, well, you shouldn't take the name of the Lord in vain. What's the first thing you think about? Well, we're just not supposed to cuss. We're just not supposed to say swear words. And certainly if we are going to say a swear word, it better not have Jesus or God in it when we say it. Well, obviously, uh, to be frivolous with our words is somewhere in view here this morning because we don't want to be frivolous with anything that's really important. But if all we think about is that the third commandment is about our words, it's a pretty superficial way to see what God is teaching us here. And so, as we just said, the importance of the name in the Hebrew was very significant. Just a few chapters earlier in Exodus, uh, we see that uh, Moses, this is chapter 3, is being called out by God to go on mission for him, to help rescue and lead the people out of Egypt. And so he has a very important question. It matters to him. God, when I go tell these people that we're going to do this crazy thing, who should I say sent me? And he says, I want you to tell them, I am who I am. That's my name. And from that, we get the literal translation for the Hebrew name Jehovah, Yahweh. We get the name Yahweh from this. Yahweh means I will be who I will be. I am who I am. And so what God is literally saying here is, I am the self-existent, self-sufficient being. I'm Yahweh. And my identity will be made known by my actions. I will be who I will be. So you will see who I am by what I do. And that's the way that the name is always connected when we think about how it's used biblically. Think about Mary and Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. They are to give the name Jesus to their child, Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. So his identity, his name is born out of what he will do by the character that will represent him. That's who I am, God is saying. And so no wonder that the Ten Commandments open with the wor- the, this word, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of slavery, okay? That's who I am. I'm a redeemer, So when God gives us the Ten Commandments, when he rescues the people out of Egypt, he is literally making a name for himself. And this is how he continues to reveal himself to his people. In Exodus 17, as Moses marches out of Egypt with the people, he builds this altar and he prays, Lord God, you are Jehovah Nisi. You are the Lord, my banner. Now, whenever a country or a nation went to war, at the front line, they held a big banner. It was their national identity. Everybody looked to the banner for focus and a reminder, this is why we're here. And here's Moses saying, but your name is Jehovah Nisi. You are my banner. You are this people's focus. You are our identity. You see, who I am is connected to my name, and what I do is connected to my name. In Genesis 22, Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. Instead, the Lord provides a ram. And what does Abraham pray? Lord, you are Jehovah Jireh. You are the great provider. What God has done has given a name that has 
a tangible feel to it for, for Abraham. And so in the back of your bulletin, uh, on the last page of the bulletin, there's a list of all the Old Testament names. And, uh, and one of the things we want to do in community group this week is talk about those and the significance of those names. Last week, we looked at Exodus 34. And it says, the Lord whose name, have no other gods before me, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, Jehovah Kana, is a jealous God. And so what the third commandment teaches us is that God is jealous for his name. Why would God be jealous for his name? You know, uh, Oprah Winfrey was 27 years old when she left the church. Uh, when she was 27, she was listening to a preacher talk about the names of the Lord. And she said, well, I could get on board with the whole idea that God was omniscient and he was omnipotent. That made sense to me. But at some point he said, the Lord your God is a jealous God. His name is Jealous. And it, it caught her weird in that moment. And she said, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why would God be jealous for his name. God's not jealous. God is a God of love. If somebody is jealous, that implies that they're selfish, that they care too much about themselves. So she ended up searching. That began her search for something else. Well, about 200 years before Oprah wrestled with that question, Jonathan Edwards, another great American, sort of anticipated that we, when we looked at God's word, might scratch our heads there as well. And so he wrote a book, a little treatise called The End for Which God Created the World. And this is what he, how he addresses the question. His, his thesis, by the way, is the end for which God created the world is himself. But he uh, anticipated that we would object to that. And we'd scratch our heads and say, wait, the end to which God created the world is himself? That sounds selfish, but here's what he said. Here's what Edward said. If God exists, then by definition, God is infinitely the greatest of beings. He's the best of all there is or could be. And if he is worth your worship, he must be infinitely good. He must be infinitely loving. Therefore, God must make himself the ultimate end of all creation. Here's what God's saying. God is the great prize, for it's only right then for God to value himself the most and for God to ask us to value him the most. This is why scripture says he is jealous for our praise. Now we say, wait, hold on a minute. Call God jealous? That makes him sound selfish. And so Edwards goes on and this is how he addresses that question in our hearts. But the reason that self-centeredness is bad is because we think people are making too much of themselves. You see, that's why we get worried about jealous, because people are making too much of themselves. But if God is supremely valuable, he should value himself supremely. God can never make too much of himself. And the reason selfishness is bad is because for anyone else, pursuing his own pleasure comes at the expense of another's happiness. And here's how Edwards concludes. But God's valuing himself supremely is never contrary to his considering our supreme happiness because God is our happiness. 
Let me just tell you that as I've been thinking through this series and praying through these commandments and thinking about what I want most to happen as I approach God's name in these commandments is for him to become my happiness. And as I was preparing for this, there were so many ways I realized, I don't know that you really are my ultimate happiness, and I want you to be. But commandment number one, think about it. Don't add to God. He's the greatest prize. Why would we add anything? Commandment number two, don't subtract from God with images. Why would we ever reduce the greatest treasure of our heart? Commandment three, don't mess with my name because his name, his character, is your happiness. Is God your happiness? Is he the ultimate prize for you? This is a series about God's church, the bride of Christ, realizing again that the great groom has a passion for you, that he is jealous for his name because he is the greatest thing that you could ever have. And he wants his bride, the church, to have ultimate greatness and ultimate treasure. Oprah says, jealous? I thought he was love. And we say, of course he's love, far more than you could ever imagine. Just as no husband who truly loved his wife could ever imagine her in the arms of another. So God loves his bride, the church. He's jealous for us. You know, his jealousy is not something that we should question. It should be the greatest name that God has towards us. We would say, are you kidding me? Who could love me like that? Who could love me the way that God loves me? That he would want my best, and his best is himself. He's a jealous God for his great name. Psalm 106.8 says, he has saved us for his own name's sake. All right, so if taking God's name in vain is more than words, how do we violate the third commandment? I'm gonna give you three ideas, and so you have on your outline the three ideas. Number one, we violate it in service to what is false. Number two, we violate it when we give service to what is frivolous. And number three, we violate it when we give service to what is phony. I couldn't think of an F word that I, well, anyway. So frivolous, false, and phony. We'll start with false. All right. Number one. The word vain means emptiness or nothingness or non-reality. So now one thing that we all realize is that when we take on a name, names are powerful and names open doors. Sometimes if you go into a certain restaurant and you name drop, you might get a table that you otherwise wouldn't get. If you go to a job interview and you've got the right name on your resume, that might open a door for you that otherwise wouldn't be open. Because what's happening when we take a name is what we're doing is we're attaching ourselves to someone else that is respected and valued and essentially the power and the respect of that person's name accrues to me. Here's an example that you could probably all be familiar with. There's a child at your house knocking on a door. On the inside of the door is another child. Child one says, open the door and let me in. Child two says, no, you're not coming in. An interaction ensues. There's no progress made. The door remains closed. Until child number one says what? Daddy says so. 
open the door, daddy says so. And as soon as he does, door springs open. Now what just happened? Child two had that door closed, was adamant about it, but compelled by the power of the name, right? Constrained by the name, daddy, the, na- the door flew open. And that's because powerful names accrue the power to us. And so child number one went in the name of daddy. Names are important, so important that we have all these laws in our culture against misusing the name. I remember uh, uh, when the old coach, George o- O'Leary, was hired uh, to coach at Notre Dame, uh, or was it Georgia Tech? I can't remember, but he used, uh, he used a name on his resume, and he identified with him, himself with a place that was false. And when he did, doors flew open for him, but eventually we said, you can't misuse the name. And he was fired, he was let go. It's huge, it's a big problem if we do it. So if a child comes up and says, daddy says, This is implying a few things that may or may not be true. But what it's implying when a child says that is I have a relationship with daddy and he's pleased with me and he's giving me instructions. He knows what I'm up to. And so I represent daddy with my behavior, with my actions. I'm doing what daddy would do. So now when we think about the third commandment as the family of God bearing the image of God, we go, whoa, God has put his name on me? God has put his name on me? That means it's not about just what I say, but it's all of life. It's this comprehensive approach to the narrative and trajectory of my life. What does it say about God when I move into this world? You know, when we... uh, When the first Christians were called Christians, uh, they were called Christ-ians, I-A-N-S, Christ-ians. It's a little suffix we use all the time. If you're from Boston, if that's where you were born, or if that's where you live, you're a Bostonian. If you're from Canada, then you get that little suffix. You say, if you were born there, if you live there, you're Canadian. What if you were a Christian? What if it meant that you were born into Christ and that now you live in Christ? And so really, the third commandment is much broader. It's about, how did I hang the ceiling fan yesterday in my house? Which I did, and it didn't go well. And if you were to watch me hang that ceiling fan you would say, I'm not sure that he is necessarily representing the full character of God here. You know, when we think about our money, when we think about our time, our treasure, how we work, how we relate to our business uh, employees, how, how we handle ourselves in public, suddenly we would say, is the way that I move in this world Commiserate, is it in line with, is it in accord with the character and the honor and the name of God? What a privilege. But suddenly we see, just like all the other commandments, we are flying high. This is not just about cussing. This is suddenly a full-orbed look at how I am called to live life. All right, number two, 
We violate God's commands whenever we use God's name in the service of what's frivolous. To be, to be frivolous means to, take, to not take something that's supposed to be serious and to treat it lightly. So when we think about uh, the Lord's Prayer, for example, the way that Jesus introduces that prayer is he says, first of all, when you pray, I don't want you to do it like the Pharisees. I don't want you to do it like the hypocrites or the Gentiles because they move into a time that is meant to be weighty and significant and they do it in a frivolous way. They heap up for themselves empty words and they do it in such a way that they want to be noticed. And so what is supposed to be supremely valuable and significant and weighty becomes something that's incredibly temporal and goofy. And God says, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to move towards me with empty phrases. Don't come into places that are weighty and important with purposeless ramblings to sound important. I want the important moments of your life to be what they should be. And I just am so often tempted to replace the things of God that are to be important and revered and honored with things that are just goofy and temporal. I want to read an um, excerpt from a passage in John Piper's book, um, God's Passion for His Glory. And here's the quote. Think about our time here this morning. Nothing makes God more supreme and more central in worship than when people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their sinful, guilty, aching hearts besides God. Here's another way we break the third commandment. We look at our hearts, which are weighty and designed for glory, and we think that frivolous things can satisfy and fill them. And so we spend all of our time, all of our money, and all of our efforts, and we, we design our calendar, and we think about what we're excited about, and it's all aimed at trying to satisfy and scratch an itch in a place that was designed for God and God alone. He goes on to say, this conviction breeds a people who go hard after God on Sunday, on Sunday morning. They're not confused about why they're in a worship service. They don't, they don't view songs and prayers and sermons as mere traditions or mere duties. They see them as a means of getting to God or God getting to them for more of his fullness, no matter how painful that may be for sinners in the short run. Sometimes it's hard to get quiet. Sometimes it's hard to come here and to set aside, you know, the soccer schedule and the time and all the other things that you've got to get done. You know, I'm a pastor, so I only work on Sundays. But you guys work all day long, and so to, all week long. And so to set aside these days, is that, you know, it's, it's so inconvenient. But it's not inconvenient when we remember that what we get here is God himself. And we come here, no matter how painful or inconvenient that may be in the short 
So how we talk about God, sure, that can be frivolous. Um, and so how, how can I think about my approach here on Sundays? What about when I have opportunities to pray with my kids? And pray at dinner. When I have opportunities to, uh, what I get to do with my free time, with my finances. Again, is the trajectory of my life, the narrative of my life, lining up with the fact that I am a Christian that I'm born in him and live in him and that this is my father's world and I want his name to be hallowed again. All right, last, number three, we violate the third commandment whenever we use God's name in vain in the service of what's phony. One of the most startling texts, uh, and you're, you're familiar with it, is in Matthew chapter seven. When we hit this, uh, it's a little scary and it's uh, sometimes a little unnerving But I want you to listen to what Jesus says about those who use his name in a particular way. Jesus says in Matthew 7, uh, verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's Jesus saying that it's quite possible for someone to be very diligent in the name of Christ. And to look on the outside quite active. And yet for there not to be an internal reality, a spiritual reality that matches it. That if you could look at the spiritual reality of the heart, you would say it's empty, it's vain, there's nothing there. So to go up to the, to the child, your brother or sister, and to knock on the door and to say, hey, daddy said when daddy didn't say, is to not match reality with what's happening on the outside. And Jesus is saying it's quite possible for that to happen. What's interesting about this passage is that when the Jewish people translated their Jewish Bibles into Greek, the word Yahweh that we looked at earlier for Lord is translated here in the New Testament, kurios. And so what we read in front of us on Matthew 7 is Lord, Lord is really the same name they are using here in this passage. Jesus is saying people will come to me and they'll, they'll use the right name. They'll have the right doctrinal beliefs. They'll have it all right in their heads intellectually. Their approach, they've got it, the, the, the T's, you know, crossed. The I's are dotted. Everything seems right. And also, they'll come with this emotion. When we try to emphasize things in our language and we try to bring out emotion when we're writing, we italicize, we bold it, we make big letters, we underline it. But in the Hebrew Bible, when you were trying to bring out emotion, you doubled the name. And here he's saying, they're saying the right name. It's Kurios, Kurios. And they're even doubling it to add emotion to it. Think about uh, when David lost his son. Absalom, Absalom, that's his cry. Jesus meets with Martha. Martha, Martha. It's to emphasize the emotion. Here he's saying, hey, listen, there's people that will come with the right beliefs upstairs. They'll come with the right emotions. They'll be feeling things. They can even be doing some really significant things in terms of ministry. Here they're, 
They're uh, healing people and they're prophesying, they're preaching, they're teaching, they're driving out demons. They are helping people. So we can have the right beliefs upstairs. We can be feeling the right things emotionally. And we can even be very active. And what he ends up saying here is, but they, they don't have the name right. There's something missing. Depart from me, I never knew you. What a horrifying and chilling thought. So we have to ask the question this morning, how do we know that we have the reality of God, the reality of his name, squared away so that what we're saying externally, what we're doing externally matches with something deep and significant inside of us? And we'll go back to what we said earlier. When a child knocks on the door and says, Daddy said so, there's two things implied. Number one, what's implied is that he came in the will of the Father, that the will of the Father was the one sending the child up the stairs to do it. And so there was submission to the Father. And number two, what's being implied implied when someone says that is intimate relationship, a relationship of grace and family. And so when we think about what the two true marks of spiritual reality are, true spiritual substance Submission to the Father's will and the grasp of the grace of God. Now I want to look at a passage in Proverbs 18.10 as we wrap up here. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are saved. But a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. So here's the question of submission. When you think about what you run to for security, what you run to for significance, when it's, when it's just you and you, and you're all by yourself, and you're on your pillow at night sleeping, or you're in the secret closet, or you're driving around and you're worried about how life's gonna play out, where is your strong tower? Is it the name of the Lord? What do you submit to when it comes to your finances, your time, your treasure? What God puts his finger on your life, is there a submission to his will saying, Lord, Lord, this is your life and I will not run to finances and I I will not run to relationships and I will not run to reputation, but instead I will run to the name of the Lord. A, A rich man's wealth is his high tower. It's what he runs to for security and significance. And life makes sense. Life feels good when I have enough. But the word says, but only in his imagination. It's not real. So when God squares you up and he says, where is your happiness? Where do you run to? Do you run to the name of the Lord? This morning, we're saying, Lord, here I am. And here's my life. And I want you to take it again. And I want you to keep taking it. Because I'm a living sacrifice. And that means that I'm prone to get off the altar. And I want to stay there. Where does that need to happen for you today? So it's submission, but it's also grace. A grasp of the grace of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. It's amazing. The whole miracle of divine grace is contained in this single word, Father. 
Now in the Old Testament, God's people were so afraid to say that name. They, they would never even say the name Father in relationship to God for being fear of struck dead. And along comes Jesus onto the scene to make all things new. And do you know what he called God every time? He called him Father. Over 60 times, he's my Father, the Father. He's my, my Abba, my cherished Father. And when Jesus invites us to pray, what does he say? He says, pray like this, our Father. That's the name that you're supposed to use, Abba. Call him Daddy. When you go to pray, call him Daddy. Now here's the gospel. The gospel says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so there's an exchange being made because of the the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus leaves something behind and he takes something upon himself. What does he take upon himself? Our sin It's counted towards him. What do we get? We get his righteousness. There's this great exchange. And we see the exchange at the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus, for the first time, does not say, Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that is not just some trivial detail. What is happening there is Jesus has become the orphan. He has lost the father so that we can become the adopted children of God. We get the name father because on the cross, he left it. He abandoned it for us. Brothers and sisters, the power to hold God's name in highest regard to be motivated towards mission, to be motivated to say, align my heart with yours, Lord God, that all my time, treasures, talents, everything would be geared and governed towards your name. The way that happens in our hearts is by receiving this free gift of Christ's work on the cross given to you, that he would become the orphan, that you would become the adopted sons and daughters of God. May that motivate our hearts as the people of God. Would we see his name as holy and revered? And would we make Carrollton a place where God's name is hallowed again? Let's pray and close our time this morning. Father, your name, your name is holy Your name is majestic. Your name is glorious. And yet also your name is intimate and tender and your name is daddy. Your name is Abba. And we realize that we get included in the family because of the great exchange on the cross. So motivated by what we see there in the person and work of Jesus, we come again this morning And we open our hands and surrender. And Lord God, we pray that your name would be great in our hearts again.
We pray in Jesus' name, amen.